one that maybe you've never heard of before. Maybe after last week you took the initiative to read it. It's the book of Amos. And in the book of Amos, the prophet from the southern part goes to the northern part of Israel and he makes a proclamation. And so we're going to look at that. It's called Let Justice Rule Down. But um, last week when we launched the series, uh, we started with a video clip of Micah Bournet. And uh, that froze, and I promised you that you would get to see the whole thing. So we're going to give it another shot today. But I think it's neat having uh, the Boshes here as well as to hear this Micah young man articulate uh, out of his background of being African-American. The beauty that the kingdom of God has inbred through the diversity of people. When we get to heaven, it says there'll be people from every tribe, language, and nation. And the beauty, and it's one of the things I enjoy about Southern California. When I go back to Midwest sometimes now, I'm like, why is everybody so white? You know, it's like the deal, right? But just the beauty and the breadth, and I think Micah Bernay articulates well how we need to be able to love one another because in God's eyes, we are all equal. And Amos, part of his message was to the core of the issue of prejudice. Prejudice to the oppression of the poor, oppression of the marginalized, the north and south conflict that was happening in Israel at the time. But let's take his words as uh, some light humor, but also a strong exhortation that we would be a people for all nations. So, Micah Bornet. My name is Micah Bornet, and... I do an art form called spoken word poetry. And uh, (laughs) if you're not familiar with spoken word, a quick introduction. Um, It's poetry meant to be performed instead of read in a book. So it's like the difference between writing a novel and writing a script for a film or a play. If you write a novel, you expect your audience to read it on paper. But if you write a script, you don't want them to read it on paper. You want them to watch as the actors perform what you've written. So it's poetry meant for the stage instead of the page. Um, And I get inspiration for poetry from strange places sometimes. And uh, this particular poem was inspired by a bottle of shampoo. (laughs) And the title of the poem is Normal Hair. I was showering at the home of a white friend pondering deeply as I lathered my chocolate skin, when suddenly I got the inclination to observe the labels of the hygiene products placed neatly on the windowsill. One particular bottle struck me as queer. A Garnier Fructis Fortifying Shampoo for normal hair. I thought, normal to whom? Based on my current residence, my hair is considered alien, yet I can think of several locations where it would fit the norm, like the Howard University dorms or the south side of Chicago. If I walked into a grocery store on 79th Street in the Shy and made my way to the shampoo aisle, I wonder what I'd find. Garnier Fructis Fortifying Shampoo. For abnormal hair, you know, the kind you can't find around here. For the hair that lays straight, no kinks, no waves. For that crazy kind of hair that doesn't need grease. Or would it still read for normal hair? 
Now, if you ask me the question, do I have normal hair, I'd answer, yes. Yet, I doubt if that product was made for my texture. But I guess I can't complain. Who wants to be normal anyway? I know what normal really means. And no offense to normal people, but I have no desire to be normal. (laughs) Then I started thinking, why don't we label everything normal as normal? Mayonnaise, the normal condiment, country, screamo, and rock will all be called normal music. Barack Obama, the first abnormal president. (laughs) Well, technically he's half normal. (laughs) Now do you see how ludicrous this concept of normality is? The only problem I have with normal people is that they think they're normal. (laughs) Trust me, there is nothing normal about you. Many of my normal friends have lost pride in their heritage as if minorities have a monopoly on everything intriguing while they get stuck with normal culture and normal hair. But this is not just a normal problem. Many people, normal and abnormal alike, fail to see the beauty in their own identities. Oh, the irony when black girls cry themselves to sleep wishing they were light-skinned while white girls lay for hours on the beach fabricating melanin. Ah! just don't understand. I'm happy how I am. Not full of pride, but proud to know I'm made in the image of God. And God is far from normal. So if every human being is fashioned after him, there is no typical human, no normal ethnic group. No matter who you are, red, yellow, black, normal or blue, there's something divine about you. But I guess you can't know this if you don't know the God you reflect. You spend your whole life thinking you're normal or worthless, never knowing which of God's many attributes are present in you. I urge you to introduce your image to its template, Jesus Christ, the prototype. In many ways, a normal God, rejected by men and despised, yet for them he was sacrificed. By this, God was pleased. Therefore, thus says the Lord in Isaiah 53, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the great, and all who know him will be like him as well. Normal? I think not. Followers of Christ possess the very spirit of God, making us extraordinary. And as if by Christ we're not already great, just you wait. We've been given a promise of glorification. Each saint will undergo a magnificent transformation. From head to toe, every hair follicle will radiate with beauty unlike you've ever viewed. When we get to heaven, Garnier fructis will not do. If your faith is in Christ, next time you run out of shampoo, take me up on this dare. Go to the store and ask the bag boy, where is the shampoo for glorious hair? Oh, that's great, isn't it? A lot of truth punched in him, and he is uh, a great orator that was at the Christian Missionary Alliance General Council last year at Long Beach. But, um, you know, our culture wants us to fall into binary camps based along ethnic lines, based along political lines, based along socioeconomic lines. And there's a lot of pitting of one camp against another. Don't you grow weary of it? Because you step back and you say, why can't we all get along? Well, the reason we can't is because there's sin. 
and that amazing grace that we sang about and we remembered around the communion table today through the work of Jesus Christ, that's able to heal. And you and I are the presence of Jesus Christ in this world to bring unity, to bring reconciliation, to bring harmony, to bring beauty, and to bring glorification of the one who died for us and is coming again. Don't get caught up in this political season trying to decide which camp you're in. You'll never win. Because there will always be something in one camp or the other that you're a little queasy about. This is not a political world, ultimately, in which we live. This is a spiritual world. So don't get caught up in the camps. Get caught up in being the presence of Jesus in the midst of all the camps that you interact and associate with every week. And the prophet Amos, out of the book of Amos in the Old Testament, he sees the sin of the people. He sees the pitting of of one camp here to another. Let justice roll. From Amos 5.24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. His heart was broken over the division of the land. The division not only of Israel and Judah, but the divisiveness from one family unit to another. And so God took this farmer boy out of the south of Judah, somewhere around the year 755 or 760 B.C., before Christ. That's what B.C. means. So that's a long time ago in one sense. But there had been a lot of history before Amos, a lot of history in his own country land, a lot of strife and division, a lot of separating into camps, political and otherwise. God took the farmer boy who was overseeing a lot of sheep and sycamore trees and he sent him north and he called him to proclaim. And he too, as Michael mentioned about his own life, not professionally trained, but God had burdened his heart to speak to the people. Now, we don't really have prophets that show up today. We have would-be prophets, those kinds of things. We have loud preachers, whatever it might be. But the prophets Jesus used throughout the Old Testament to be able to bring people back into correction. And he would send them into the public square. And the public square, we don't really have a public square. In the Midwest, you have a lot of courthouse towns, public squares, places where people would meet. But I figure this is about the closest you get in Temecula of a public square. This is the Commons area at the uh, Promenade Mall in front of Edwards Theater. How many of you have been there? All right. We all have been there. So Amos goes and he shows up in the Promenade area. And he shows up in the Promenade area and he starts to articulate um, a pretty strong message. And you need to know this as it relates to prophets. They were equal opportunity offenders. They didn't care what the gender was, what the race was, what the socioeconomic background was. They would just speak on behalf of the Lord. In this particular moment, if you can imagine a bunch of shoppers gathered in the promenade area, crowded, people flowing in and out. Maybe it's the holiday season. In particular, there's a lot more uh, ladies sometimes shopping than men. Of course, that's a hangout place for students as well, I'm aware of, there in front of the Edwards Theater. And uh, I will do the uh, 
thing that Amos uh, would have done if he was here in our day and age, and that is he would not have been politically correct. So this is a little bit of paraphrase of what he might have said from the passage we're going to be looking at today just briefly in Amos. So he stands up there on one of those benches, and he proclaims to passers-by, they're all shopping, coming and going, busy, everything that's happening. And he says, listen to me, you fat cows. You are so consumed with consumption, thinking that the purpose of life is nothing greater than having fun spending and acquiring possessions. Why, it is a known fact that you demand from your husbands an ever-increasing standard of living. You so pressure your husbands to maintain your luxurious lifestyles that they manipulate the markets, they circumvent ethical business standards, and bribe the courts, taking advantage of the needy, oppressing the poor, and swindling money out of anyone they can. Well, I'm here to proclaim to you that God is ticked, and God has called you out to repent, but I've watched you. I know you, and you won't listen. He sent drought, and you said it's only a temporary effect of climate change. He sent blight and mildew and locusts, and you only complained that food prices were rising at Albertsons. He involved you in far-off wars, some of which your nation has struggled to win, and you said it's only because the war was mismanaged. Turn our forces loose, and we can whip the world. Oh, I know. You are very religious. You attend worship regularly. This is part of your rebellion, for when you come, it is not to worship, but to illustrate how pious you are so that your neighbors will think well of you. And when you do bow down, it's not because you love the Lord. It's because you want him to bless your self-centered lives. A little awkward, wasn't that word? That's the word. In paraphrase, that Amos had for the people of his day. And it was awkward. When God speaks prophetically through his servants, it's not an easy word for a servant to share, but it's a word that you need to hear. Have you ever had a word that you needed to give to somebody? And you knew. You didn't need to claim, hey, this is of God. But you know you needed to speak out and speak into their life. At least on a personal level, you couldn't hold it in. But then you didn't want to offend them. You wanted to be nice. And so you didn't say anything. And lo and behold, you watched their life and it continued to careen out of control in all kinds of different directions. Because you wouldn't take the initiative to speak into their life. And that may be true of you this morning. Maybe there's somebody God's calling you to speak into their life about. Not in a haughty, arrogant, kind of mean manner, but one that is really out of a heart of love, a tough love. Like when you speak to your children about the errors that they fall into. Have you ever had anybody speak into your life a tough word? And you're like, whoa, that wasn't very nice. Or, or it's like, well, who are you? Who are you to say that to me? Right? So we sort of shy away from the tough words. We do it in churches too, don't we? This is amazing grace. Let's stay on the strong, positive side of the gospel message. But do you know the gospel referred to as the good news cannot be good news unless you understand the bad news. And the bad news ends that we are sinners 
and we wonder from the God who created us that there is brokenness in our own heart and that brokenness in our own heart plays out in brokenness in our families, in our communities. And many a times we need the prophetic words spoken to us from God. And it's my hope that Amos is that for you in these weeks that we've just paused to camp here. Because as I mentioned with the whole thing of dividing camps, the political decision, the, the, the political issues and the decision of uh, voting for president and all that stands before us and elected officers and state control, we can start to ride up on a political plane and you need to push through it and see what the spiritual heart is of things. I was telling our life group this week, you know, we didn't get into the politics thing too much, but, you know, there's not a lot of issues I really vote on. But I do vote on the issue of justice. And I think that there needs to be justice for all. I think there needs to be a rule of law that's adhered to in courts. All right? But you've got to push through all the politics. And at the heart of it is God calling a people and a nation to continue to follow and to walk with him. And he would send prophets to call that out. J.A. Moitier says this concerning the day in which Amos lived. This is 755 B.C. Affluence, exploitation, and the profit motive were the most notable features of the society which Amos observed and in which he worked. The rich were affluent enough to have several houses apiece to go in for rather ostentiously expensive furniture and not deny themselves any bodily satisfaction. Standards had gone to pot. Authority and the rule of the law were despised, and national leadership, while reveling in the publicity of dignity of position, seemed to be contributing to the complete breakdown of law and order. What goes around comes around. History repeats itself. You're like, that's a statement we could talk about maybe today. Not only in our nation, but in other places places that are even far worse than some of the the challenges that we find here. Amos knew this. Amos was up against it, but he was obedient to speak the word of God. The kingdom of Israel was divided in the year 922 B.C. You have to think backwards with B.C. before Christ, right? And in 922 B.C., the kingdom split into the north, Israel, and into the southern part of Judah. There were 12 tribes. Ten were in the north, two gathered uh, in the south, Judah and Benjamin. After Solomon, Saul, David, Solomon, the kings of Israel, the kingdom split with Solomon's sons, Jeroboam, to the north, Rehoboam, to the south. Jeroboam was fearful that he wouldn't have due recognition. You can read about this in 1 Kings 12. And so he established different places to worship rather than Jerusalem. They were to worship in Jerusalem only, the temple. And so he set up a place in a place called Bethel and up in the north part of Israel called Dan. And he called his people to worship there because he did not want them to go down to Jerusalem because then they might start having affinity for Rehoboam again. In fact, they were going to end up warring one with another, and God held up Judah uh, from going and invading Israel. And that's why probably a prophet like Amos was sent instead as the years went on. He established two golden calves, Jeroboam did. 
to be worshipped. Golden calves were not God's order. Sort of reminds you of what happened with the parting in the Exodus. The golden calves could represent very well uh, materialism and because they were calves and young and what was happening in the land at the time uh, because of other gods, they were seen as fertility kind of gods or sexuality. And so the golden calves were worshipped, even called Jehovah. Now, you could also worship Yahweh, too. It was all a big old mixed bags of people doing whatever they thought. And Jeroboam said, don't go to Jerusalem. You worship at Bethel and Dan. And the gods of materialism and sex were prominent then as surely as what we would find today. Rehoboam, I tried to held on to the south, and then there was a continued lineage of kings for both the north and the south. But the south fell in 722 B.C. I mean, the north fell in 722 B.C., Israel. It's a firm date. Those ten tribes have been obliterated. They have never returned as an identity, even though we have the nation of Israel today. Those twelve tribes that were exiled in 722 was the ultimate punishment that Amos spoke about in 760 or 755, somewhere in there, 35 years before he spoke a word. So you go back 35 years, think about it. Somebody shows up, speaks to you in your own personal life about, hey, if you don't change your ways, doom coming. And you go, I'm fine. And the next year you get a pay raise. Next year you get a pay raise. Everything's doing well. You can't determine your life trajectory in a short period of time. You've got to look big picture. And big picture for Israel, when they had the prophets speak into their life, was everything came true. The punishment, the exile. The southern kingdom fell later in 586 B.C. The nation of Israel that came back in uh, our lifetime or span of some of us that are older, I guess, is... Uh, a political, political nation. But the religious nation never again formalized in that regard. So that's some of the history. When you come to this passage that I paraphrase, I want us to look at it in Amos 4. And you thought I was mean by saying fat cows. Amos starts out and he says, Hear this word, O Israel. You cows of Bashan from Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. He says, the sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. The hooks... I think a big old meat hooks just pulling them out. Maybe there's an earthquake. There were breaks in the walls. And that's exactly how they were probably taken out. And then in verse 4 of Amos 4, go to Bethel and sin. What's he referring to? Well, there's those cows. There's those calves you worship. Go there and do what you do. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. You think you're all so high and holy. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your freewill offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Lord God. He had a strong word for them. 
and the strong word called them out in the midst of their world of affluence and their world of trampling on broken people. What I want to do, if you go back and you see that whole passage there, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. It wasn't a gender-specific problem. It was both genders because they were crushing the needy, oppressing the poor and using them. And the poor in the land continue into any particular area that you want to go. But God says you need to have a heart and you need to have a heart for those who are broken and those who are needy. I want to share just some simple words with you as it relates to poorness. It's said that Anybody that has an income above $40,000, I think that's the mark, is in the top 4% of people in the world. And this isn't an exhortation to dump on us for being in a privileged kind of position. But we need to understand that we are a people of privilege, but that there are people who do not have privilege materially. And what Amos saw was he saw unfair balances being used when trade was happening. He saw um, you know, collateral for loans being abused and stolen. And he was trying to cry out with the heart of God. The heart of God goes towards brokenness and poorness. We live in a culture that tries to get us to assail the ascendancy of wealth. There is nothing wrong with wealth. In fact, if you were to look at Scripture's teaching about wealth real quick, wealth itself is not condemned in Scripture. When wealthy people in the Bible were condemned, they were condemned for the means by which their riches were obtained, not for the riches themselves. The exhortation throughout Scripture is that Christians should be concerned about the effect wealth can have on our lives. And so he says, what are you doing with the poor that are around you? Jesus said you would always have the poor. But are we people who will engage and help and live out a life of love for those who are around us in whatever condition that they may be? You can ignore the poor. You can abuse the poor. You can help the poor. There were different means in Scripture we don't have time to go into as to how the poor were helped. But Amos was directing them to take care of this opulence, this affluence, and to live a life that was more right-sized in its direction. So in Amos 5, he says, This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not go to Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Was it? It was. 722 B.C. It's gone. 35 years before, though, he's speaking this. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like fire and will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to 
quench it. The exhortation for us is to seek the Lord and to live. If you were to sum up some aspects of an economic lifestyle for a Christian, it's this. We need to acknowledge that God is the creator and the owner of all that you and I have. We need to pursue the freedom that comes with simplicity. But then we need to seek God and live in his kingdom. For his will and his righteousness says that in in Matthew. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be made unto you. And that we need to worship God with genuine and generous giving. It's what I simply want us to know and to do to walk out of here today. It's this. Material wealth can become the hook that rips you away from God's purpose and real pleasure to bless other people. Be mindful of that. I don't know if the prophet would show up at the mall or not. Maybe he'd show up when we sit down to go online to buy something. Be mindful of seeking God and live a simple lifestyle and do not be pulled away by the wealth. And then to do, you need to make a face turn to seek God every day of your life when you go, I want that or that would be nice. Oh, look what they have. Don't seek the prosperity and the affluence. Seek God and live. Or, as the prophet said, ignore God and die. And sometimes your death is a slow death by worldly distractions. And on that turning towards God in the midst of the land of affluence like he was in and the lens of abusing the poor, you also need to live a life of disciplined giving and generosity to God and to others. A lot in a short amount of space this morning. But the word that stands before us is an equal word, I believe, to our culture as it was to the people of Israel in 755 B.C. God wants us to be freed of that which Satan and the world around us tries to ensnare us in. He wants us to be free from materialistic mindsets, free from sensual pursuits, and seeking Him to live. We're going to close this morning. Joe's going to come back up and just close with that amazing grace song that we started with. This is amazing grace. That's seeking God and living rather than dying. And as he sings this song, the ushers are going to come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings this morning. And I just want to exhort us in this, that the offering is not something, oh, tag it in the service. It's one of those things churches do so they pay the bills. Don't ever give if it's for those reasons. We give as an act of worship. An act of worship because our possessions are not ours. They're God's. And we give with a sense of sacrifice and discipline. Because he is the one who holds every breath in his hands. 
So as the ushers come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings, see it as an act of his amazing grace. And also as he comes, I'm going to have us then stand. And if you want to take a moment here after service and have somebody pray with you concerning a physical need, an emotional need, or even a spiritual need, I want you to come to the front. Some of our prayer team is going to anoint with oil and We've been seeing some really good things happen when people come to believe in faith. The prayer offered in faith can make the sick person well. And we want to give moments and time for that here this morning. But let's sing this amazing grace song again. Thanking God that we don't have to be caught in the snares of affluency or politics or other kinds of diversions in life, but we get to be consumed with seeking God and living with Him. The ushers will come, and as we stand, you can also come and just hang around after the song's over, and we just.